We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Chris Irons from quotetheraven.substack.com. How are you today, Chris? I'm good. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be talking to you, as always. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of at the start of a new week here, and you recently penned a piece called The Fed is Fighting Panic with Panic. One thing that you you and I have talked about and that was really kind of on my mind as we watched this past weekend, the bank failure and everything around that, it really made me think about that one sentence that you're saying is we're going to just wake up one morning and everything is going to be different. Yeah, exactly. And it seems like on one hand, yes, it is different. And on the other hand, it's really not. So I want to get your thoughts on how you see this bank failure developing and why in some ways it's just more of the same from the Fed. Well, it's definitely a start, right? It may not be, you know, people aren't waking up and instantly in the mood for capitulation, there certainly doesn't seem to be a lot of fear out there yet. You know, I had one very well-known hedge fund manager that I talked to say that to me last week, basically said, you know, or maybe it was Friday or Monday. I don't remember, but, you know, discussing the situation with the banks. And he just said to me, you know, there's still no real fear out there. And he's right. There isn't, you know, anybody that's looked at the chart of, market cycles knows that you know there's euphoria at the top and then before you get anywhere near a trough where you might want to buy which usually occurs after fear after capitulation in an area called despair (laughs) that's what it's labeled on the chart We're, we're so far from that i think we have just barely crested the apex of the top of this market cycle we've just moved on from euphoria and we're in a spot right now i think it's called disbelief maybe or you know a uh, fake return to normal so we have a very very long way down to go in terms of sentiment if you just want to gauge of sentiment you know lest we forget on top of that that equities are still very expensive here you know the s&p is still trading at 18 times declining earnings you know next year like earnings growth will slow over the next year. And so that multiple will get a little bit larger. And here we are at the very beginning stages of what I wrote was a shift in market psychology. And, you know, this is something where we didn't wake up the next morning and everybody's retirements went to zero, but is the beginning of what I think will be a longer change in market psychology that's going to be necessary to kind of tip the snowball down the hill, down towards actual selling, real fear, real despair, real capitulation. But but we're nowhere near there yet. And I think we have a long way to go before we get there. You know, the situation with Silicon Valley Bank is really the first time that people are recognizing that we may not be in for the soft landing that everybody has been talking about over the last year. I mean, foolishly, you of all people know, I mean, we've talked a number of times, but you of all people know that 
I've been crowing for the last year about how there will be hell to pay for these rate hikes at some point. And we're just starting to see that, you know, these rate hikes take effect with a lag. So it's not like they hike the rate on Tuesday and the market experiences it on Wednesday. They hike the rate on Tuesday and the market starts to kind of price the stuff in and it begins to work its way through the economy's plumbing over the course of the next quarter or two quarters or three quarters. So the destruction that we're seeing in Silicon Valley Bank is, in my opinion, the product of rate hikes that happened last year. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of news articles about how, you know, they were buying paper yielding 1.6%. And then, you know, when bonds crashed from there, that was kind of what started to blow a hole in their balance sheet, which was already laden with the worst speculative VC crap, unprofitable bilge and garbage that you could potentially put money in to begin with. So who knows when the fall in bonds and the hike in yields began to be a real problem for these guys. But, you know, one thing is for certain, I think that the pain that they're experiencing is not a product of, you know, rate hikes that took place over the last three months. I think they are just because what happens is when you have an issue, you know, you try to cover it up, you try to patch it up, you try to do everything, but eventually, you know, this fire sale that these guys had to do last week, because when you do that, it shocks the market. Mm -hmm. And so you take every other step necessary before that, And then you get to the point where the shit hits the fan publicly. And I think this blow up, absent whatever the Fed is trying to do here with, you know, this miniature bailout that they're putting in place is going to be the first of many. And we are going to see now the dominoes that essentially fell last year already. The market is going to start to see those now. And so, you know, that's going to throw a huge wrench in the gears for anybody that thinks that we're heading for a soft landing. I mean, that that entire thesis is off the table now. Why? Because, you know, inflation's at 6% and we have a situation now where the Fed can't hike rates anymore. So they are backed into that corner that you and I have talked about for the last year. They are officially in the predicament between the rock and a hard place here where they're going to have to let inflation win or they're going to have to let the economy collapse. And, you know, I think they will probably let inflation win. The difference here, Tom, and the main key here is I wrote last week on my Substack, you know, will market psychology go first or will the, you know, and then break the economy and break the market or the market break first and will that break psychology? And I think we got a little bit of both here, but I think the most important thing is now everybody who went into last week thinking that the idea of a soft landing was possible and, you know, with zero risk aversion blinders on, all of those people are now on notice that this might not be the case. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes to start a self-fulfilling cycle lower where fear begets fear and deleveraging begets lower prices and on and on the mess goes until uh, things really start rolling down the hill. So I think that the, the psychological element here is the most important thing because, you know, if, if you have a hundred million market participants, let's just say between, you know, funds and individuals and whatever, 
you know, let's doesn't even matter. Just throw a number out there. Say there's a hundred million people somehow with connections to the market and everybody's risk aversion two weeks ago was essentially zero because, you know, CNBC and all these idiots have been saying that, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're definitely going to, you know, we're on our way to a soft landing. One anchor wrote, you know, Powell is a skilled pilot. He's going to bring us in for a landing. It's like, yeah, okay. Have you forgotten about math? But, but anyways, all of those people who thought, okay, like, you know, we're at 5% and we're fine here. Nothing's broken. The economy hasn't exploded yet. All of those people now are going to adjust their risk tolerance. And even if it's only a little bit, even if everybody only adjusts their risk tolerance 5%, that 5% times 100 million market participants, and all of a sudden you have a very, very different sentiment among market participants. So now what we have going into the end of this week, going into next week, is we have a situation where people are on notice and now we have this tug of war between, you know, the Fed trying to instill confidence in the market and participants' willingness to believe and trust in the Fed and have confidence in the Fed that they have it under control. And that's going to be interesting. That's why you see the market whipsawing, you know, down 2%, up 2% in the same day because nobody really knows yet. You know, does the Fed have it under control or, you know, is something else going to break? And, you know, the reason that I was writing that the Fed is fighting a panic with a panic is because already, you know, over the last 12 to 18 months, the Fed has made a point of trying to posture as though it wanted to break the back of inflation. And here we are, you know, with the first kind of crisis in the banking sector. And by the way, this isn't JP Morgan, you know, this isn't this isn't the housing market going bust. You know, this was a portfolio of dog shit that deserves to go to zero first. And that's exactly what's happening. You know, it's going to zero first. Why? Because it is the most speculative things people could get their hands on. It was the early stage venture capital companies that aren't established, companies that are not turning a consistent profit companies that may not even have a niche of a business model that's worthwhile. And so those are the types of companies that are supposed to go bust first. That is quintessential euphoric malinvestment. And at the very, very first sign of that portfolio having problems, the Fed has already stepped in. So they they have taken their credibility in terms of the fight against inflation out back and shot it. You know, obviously, if the Fed begins to ease, it's going to exacerbate the inflation problem instead of solve it. And so they're stuck in a, in a very delicate type of situation here where it doesn't seem like there's any winning situation. I would have said, let this bank fail. I mean, there is just no way that taxpayers in any way, whether it's through inflation via printed money or it's through an increase in tax receipts or however they want to say it. I know the White House is saying, you know, none of this will be, you know, put on the taxpayer. Look, the money has to come from somewhere. Nobody in the public deserves to have exposure to this portfolio of dog shit other than the people that knowingly took on the exposure to the portfolio of dog shit. And so, you know, that's it. I mean, if there's there's a name for the Fed to bail out, it is not Silicon Valley Bank. And so here we go again. We're going to have endless discussions about moral hazard and Fed's on a different trajectory. The stakes have definitely been upped 
right? The Fed said we're going to fight inflation. They got rates up to almost 5%. The first round of betting has been made around the poker table, right? So you got people kind of throwing their bets in that the Fed's going to be able to do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the cards have come out and now the second round of betting is going to go around. And people are really going to get a little bit better of a perspective on where they stand, you know, what hand we're really holding here versus when we were just looking at our two whole cards and it's not good. You know, we didn't catch anything on the flop. So everybody will readjust accordingly and the pressure ratchets up a little bit further for the administration, a little bit further for the Fed, you know, and look, I mean, you and I both know this as do your listeners. If if you are a precious metals investor, This is exactly what you know was going to happen and predicted was going to happen and have to love to see because this is the beginning of the Fed destroying its credibility, which will eventually, you know, I know gold was up 40 bucks today or something. That's nothing. That's child's play. Those are kitty numbers. Okay. Hundreds and hundreds of dollars an ounce when this thing unravels in one, two, three day spans. I think that's what I'm predicting. Because it's going to be very clear. We already saw it in Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin was up 10% when the Fed first announced this thing. I mean, that would be, uh, you know, that'd be $190 an ounce for gold. It's very, very possible. As a matter of fact, I predict it will happen at some point this year. It's not ridiculous. So as a precious metal investor, if you just want to sit back and look at your bullion or look at your mining stops and watch Jerome Powell napalm his credibility in the economy and the U.S. dollar all at once, I mean, you know, have a sip of your iced tea and, and watch the show. But that's pretty much where we are now. I mean, the, <laughs> the pressure has been ratcheted up here. We're on, this is stage two, right? We're no longer on stage one here of this ridiculous, ridiculous soft landing narrative that should have never been a thing to begin with, as you and I both know. But, you know, uh, what are you going to do? I mean, you got a whole market and a whole financial media full of idiots. Mm-hmm. Chris, do you think that bailing this bank out, like you said that they should have let it fail, what do you think the risk of contagion that they were acknowledging there really is? And is that the biggest reason that they actually came to the rescue for that? Well, that probably is. And that, you know, there's going to be contagion, right? I mean, that's what happens when banks fail, you know? So what do you want? You know, at the end of the day, you know, would there have been more bank runs You know, how do you handicap how many more bank runs you would be having if they let the bank fail versus if they didn't? Because there's still bank runs now, right? There's still people lined up outside of First Republic. There's still people lined up at other banks. Which I was going to say earlier is a sign of fear from Main Street. But as you were saying, maybe not. There's no real sign of fear, let's say, necessarily from the market participants, as you were saying. No, there isn't. And at some point the bank runs would stop and the free market would kind of make a decision on which banks are solid enough, credit worthy enough, you know, have enough assets so that, you know, they look appealing as investments despite the panic. And so it wouldn't be this never ending cycle that just destroys the U.S. economy, you know, completely all in one fell swoop, but there would be more contagion and, you know, other people would wind up losing money, but then it would be over with. You know, that malinvestment would be out of the system, that fear, that capitulation, and it'd be brought on sooner and it would be dealt with sooner. And on the other hand, you have 
the idea of bailing out the bank, which, you know, sets a completely different, totally, they, they both have negatives to them, right? You know, the, the, the negatives, the negatives of bailing out the banks are, you know, it's going to be inflationary. It's, you know, it's a loss of credibility for the Fed, just as there would be. And that's a kind of a broader and a less recognizable negative, but it's, it's a zero sum game. So, you know, it's as much of a negative as would be if the Fed let the bank fail. It's just different. They just kind of post it to their books a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. So it's just a question of, you know, at the end of the day, is maintaining the Fed's credibility and integrity worth it? You know, there's an argument, and I don't know, I'm sure there's a calculation you could run here. I don't know what it is. But at the end of the day, there, there has to also be a case for Jerome Powell coming out and saying, look, I said we're going to fight inflation, and that's what we're doing, and we're not doing bailouts, and, you know, we're on a mission from God here. While that may have less desirable of an impact immediately, and it would, you know, likely shock and awe the markets a lot more than bailing out the banks, it would also, on the other hand, kind of keep Jerome Powell's credibility and the Fed's credibility intact. And that could be meaningful in other ways. You know, maybe we would start to see inflation come down a little bit more. You know, people would psychologically not be worried about rising prices as much if they knew that he was as committed to fighting inflation, so committed that he would let a bank fail. So there's a, there's a lot to weigh out. It's, you know, it's a shame that we've gotten ourselves in this conundrum to begin with where we're so far off the path that, you know, any move in any direction, the consequences are going to be, you know, amplified four, five, six, a hundred times more than they would have been, you know, maybe if we had just let 2008 play out and just rebuilt from scorched earth after that, you know. Mm -hmm. Is there, you know, for the time being, Chris, do you think that this is a way that they maintain their fight against inflation as long as we see another even 25 basis point rate hike in the coming meeting and bailing out this bank is that a way that they get their fight against inflation for now alongside a quote-unquote soft landing yeah i mean tom let's get real we know a soft landing isn't happening whether they raise 25 basis points or they cut 100 basis points at the next meeting is irrelevant for Mm -hmm. the underlying economy that is already You know, like I said, a lot of this shit has made its way through the economy already. We're just waiting to hear about the blow ups. Mm -hmm. The only difference, you know, raising a quarter or cutting 100 basis points is going to make is on, you know, short term market psychology. Right. It's going to send a message to the market on a very short term that, hey, you know, the Fed is has already pivoted. They're committed to changing course. You know, equities will be fine. Metals are going to moon this, that and the other. And if they, I mean, look, I think if they hike a quarter point right now, after all these investment banks have come out yesterday saying that they expect no move from the Fed, I think if they hike a quarter point, I think it'll scare the shit out of people. I mean, we've been enduring these 50 basis point hikes, you know, like it's nothing. People are just like, have been laughing at them over the last 12 to 18 months. So I've been watching it happen. Like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. Like, there is no way that we should... I mean, when the market crashed in 2018, it was because it was due to a series of like 15 quarter point hikes in a row. The, the little minimal dosage hikes spread out over years. And here we are, you know, stuffing 50 basis point hikes down the throat 
of an economy with record levels of debt across the board. We've worn down all of our pandemic savings. So, you know, I don't think it's going to make a difference. I think we've already, you know, the, the seeds have been sown as far as what's going to occur in the economy over the next year. The Fed's action from this point forward will just serve as a short-term temporary, you know, psychological indicator, weather vane. And then there's a second layer of game theory there about, you know, the Fed losing or gaining credibility from what it does. I mean, I would almost I would almost say it's worth it to raise a quarter point to say, hey, like, you know, despite the bailout, we're still committed to trying to fight inflation. But, you know, I think we both know where this is headed. Mm-hmm. This is a lose-lose scenario, no matter what they do, because they've already they've already sown their seeds here. Every day that goes by, we're living another day with the federal funds rate at, you know, 4%. Mm-hmm. And every day, somebody else misses a bill or somebody else misses a payment, or somebody else spends a little bit less discretionarily because of that. And what's happening today in the economy, the mortgage payments that are missed this month, the car payments that are missed this month, they won't show up in delinquencies until you know maybe the third or fourth quarter of this year. So along those lines right now, we're just experiencing some of the turmoil that we put into action last year. So the difference now is now that, you know, now that the bad news train is going to continue and trust me, it will, there is going to be other huge problems coming up here. I don't know where they're going to be. If they'll be in banking, if they'll be somewhere that nobody expected, who knows, maybe you know, this is like, <laughs> this is the kind of environment where you're just kind of sitting around one day and all of a sudden, you know, maybe some enormous tech company that nobody would suspect just gets accused of fraud or something, you know, like there's just, there's just an environment now where like there's so many wild cards, you know, because pressure on the economy, pressure from higher rates, it starts to really tighten the nuts and bolts and screws of all these companies. And, you know, we're going to see something that nobody's going to expect. I don't know what it's going to be, but it'll happen just as nobody expected the Silicon uh, Valley bank thing might be in banking, might be somewhere else, but there will be other screws that blow. There will be other gaskets that blow. And at that point, you know, we've sown our seeds. Like I said, the Fed has already put this into motion and the public's on notice that it's time to kind of be a bit more risk off than they were a couple of weeks ago. So I think there's hell to pay and it's coming up. And I think maybe over the next year, the Fed will be late, you know, by virtue of how I'm describing it, everything with the lag, they're already late in taking action. So even if they come out and just say they're doing QE infinity again and they decide to, you know, do a 250 basis point cut as an emergency, it's just not going to matter because there's still going to be so much detritus that needs to be flushed out of the system. So, yeah, it's going to get good, dude. Just watch. And as we know, those cuts and everything come far too late, you know, once things have already happened. Right. But Chris, you know, Thinking about that market psychology that you were talking about earlier, one would think that there would have been a big flight into the dollar and let's say maybe gold getting sold off alongside everything else today, but we really haven't seen that. Gold has been up solidly and actually the dollar is down. So do you think that this could be maybe interpreted as the market somewhat acknowledging the amount of risk in the system and trying to flee to gold instead of the dollar? Well, I think it's the market acknowledging that the Fed has no spine. 
I mean, that that's really all I think it is. The, the market sees what happened here with Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. And they said the Fed's going to step in no matter what at any point with unlimited everything. And we're going to have a, you know, an M2 explosion like we had during coronavirus, except maybe a factor higher than what we had during the COVID relief. And the balance sheet will grow once again. And where do you want to be when that happens? You don't want to be in the dollar. You know, you want to be in gold. And I think this is just the market anticipating that. You know, the funny thing is gold was up here anyways back in March of 2020. And then, you know, the Fed kind of fooled the gold market, I think, a little bit into thinking that they were going to be able to land this thing softly. But the pullback wasn't anywhere near what the gain was back then. So what do we pull back to, you know, 1700 or 1800s, you know, and now so here we are kind of at this next launching point. At the same time, the Fed is getting ready to panic and capitulate themselves again. So that's why money's going into the gold and money's going into silver and, you know, palladium's up 8% today. And, you know, I think that's going to continue. I mean, I, I think that we're, if you count March of 2020 and the all-time highs that we had back then, I mean, I think we're like in the beginning stages of like a super cycle for gold, especially when you try to handicap the fact that the dollar is really being put on trial here globally by the likes of you know, China and Russia, who tighten their alliance again this week, and India and Saudi Arabia and these countries, you know, deciding that they're going to trade in other currencies. So when you take the geopolitical risk and you add it to the fact that, you know, we're about to enter into another period of modern monetary theory on crack, I think, you know, gold is a great place to be. But I've I've always said I think gold is a great place to be. You know, the, the only thing that would change my opinion is if the system just, you know, outright breaks and resets and gold will be much higher if that happens. So then, you know, we'll have a point where we can be talking about taking profits or if the Fed decides to really let something break and get wise and say, hey, we need to have a serious reset of expectations of the way that we do modern monetary theory in this country or monetary policy rather in this country. And it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You know, they'll, they'll never do it. They'll cave. They'll cave at the sight of it. They you know, if they don't have the constitution, they don't have the backbone to do it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, look, you could argue gold's been in a super cycle since 1970, right? Like, <laughs> it's only going in one fucking direction up, you know, because for as long as the dollars, the reserve currency, and the and the major central banks that run the world adopt and embrace a policy of trying to print their way to prosperity, what the hell else would you want to own more than gold? And I've been saying for 10 years, it's the if I had could only own one asset, that would be the one that I would want to own. And that tune hasn't changed, despite lots of short and medium term flack that I get, you know, because you get a lot of people that want to trade it, you get a lot of people that are skeptical of the Austrian school. But here we are, again, right near all-time highs and getting ready to launch. And I couldn't be happier that, you know, I have exposure to miners and that I add to that exposure uh, on the daily. Chris, you mentioned that you think the next, let's say, round of easing or or the Fed coming to the rescue is going to be, you know, a factor higher than we saw during the the beginning of the, the coronavirus outbreak. Is that because the Fed is going to have to come back to the table with more ammunition to have even less of an effect than they did last time? Well, and that's that's how it goes, right? That's how it has to be. That's the name of the Keynesian game. Mm-hmm. 
You know, when, when you're shooting for inflation, consistent inflation, and you want to continue down the path of this, I don't even know what you call it, crony capitalist, Keynesian, modern monetary theory, privatizing profits, socializing losses. When you want to run this system that they're running, you always have to come back with more because the bubble always gets bigger and the mm-hmm. crisis always gets bigger. And therein, you know, lies the folly of it all. Because eventually, you know, eventually things just go parabolic. I think you have to really start to ask and answer some very difficult questions that the Fed, I know, is not interested in answering and definitely not interested in facing. You know, there's no there's no elected leader, no politician that's interested in facing the music and looking our monetary policy in the eye and saying, maybe we're doing this wrong because holy shit. I mean, talk about something for the populace to digest. That's about as big of a, you know, shit burger as you can feed somebody. It essentially says everything that you've known your whole life is wrong. and We need to reset everything. And then you have like a massive, massive disconnection of I don't even know what happens. I mean, I don't know what happens to asset prices. I don't know what happens to currencies, but it's not a normal day at the office. I'll say that. Mm hmm. So, Chris, do you think that this could be the beginning of maybe the Fed needing to acknowledge that they have to raise that 2% inflation target? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it really seems to me that if we're going to go back down this road of bailouts and, you know, quote unquote, money not not coming from the taxpayer to make these depositors whole, it really seems to me that they're going to lose the fight against inflation you know, despite yep. even the base effects that are going to show inflation going in a positive direction for them. So they will they will adjust every variable they can. They will pull out every trick they can. They will do anything that they can do other than face the music. So if it means selling, you know, treasury bonds with a 200 year maturity, then that's what it's going to take. If it's raising the inflation target to 5% per year, And, you know, if it's adjusting the CPI and it could be all of the above, they will do all of those things before they face the music. So I think you're spot on and I will lay it on the line right now on the phone with you. I'm not sure what other bold guarantee predictions I've made on this podcast before, but I will guarantee you that they will be raising their inflation target because there is just no way that they can you know stick i heard this guy yesterday explaining why they have a two percent inflation target to begin with and he can't even explain it i mean you would think after a decade of peddling this target which everybody knows is arbitrary right everybody knows they just they just invented it you know there's there's no real reason that they have a two percent inflation target And I forget what his answer was. You know, it was like, well, you know, that's what we've been doing with the European Central Banks. It's the number we agreed on. It'll let us do this and this. And I was just listening to his answer. I'm like, it's not even not even close to a coherent answer as to why the target is at 2% to begin with. And so, I mean, they literally just pulled it out of their ass. And they can do the same thing with a 3% target. And they can say, hey, well, uh, what we decided is... If we move the target to 3%, we get all the benefits of a 2% inflation target plus 1% extra. You know, we get 1% extra benefits or, you know, we get the 1% helps us cool the economy more because it, you know, lowers people's expectations of further inflation or some bullshit nonsense. And that's what they'll do. You know, 
yes, I guarantee you the inflation target's going to get moved up. They're going to have to. It's one of the few remaining tools that they have. They'll do that in concert with, you know, rate hikes and more QE, which will all come late. But yeah, they'll move it up to two and a half percent or something like that. I'm giving you a guarantee on that one, Tom. Guarantee. Maybe even before the end of this year. Yeah, it really doesn't seem, again, I, I feel like something's got to give here. It's either got to be inflation or this not soft landing that, you know, it seems like everybody except for the Fed sees coming. And like you say, the math just doesn't work out for any of these scenarios to be able to work out the way that the narrative has been told. And unfortunately, I think it's going to take time. But, you know, you you make the point that a lot of our listeners are hopefully understanding these things already being positioned in gold and silver. And, you know, hopefully that ends up serving the purpose that yep. they see the value proposition of. And where did the excess first come from that kind of set this whole chain of events off here over the last couple of weeks? It came from crypto, right? In the crypto market, there's still so much froth and excess. And this is, you know, going back to things we've predicted over the last year. I mean, you and I sat around and talked about how crypto could be the fuse that sets off the bomb that sends the economy into a tailspin. And that's almost exactly what's happened here, right? Silvergate went under. And if Silvergate doesn't go under, do people react to Silicon Valley the same way that they did? I don't know, you know, but that was the first little nugget that was in people's heads. Like, ah, okay. Banks can fail as a crypto bank, but still banks can have problems. Okay. So then when Silicon Valley comes up the next week and announces that huge $1.8 billion loss that they had to take, it was fresh on everybody's mind. So now Silicon Valley Bank is fresh on everybody's mind. So whatever happens next is going to really catch the attention of people. But, you know, look, I said, I think maybe Bitcoin will survive this. It maybe still has to take an, another number of legs lower. Maybe there'll be plenty more blow ups in crypto. There's surely a lot of excess and froth and filth and garbage and just you know, bilge in crypto, not the least of which is Tether, which will have to be addressed at some point. But, you know, that that's just another indication, like an 18 multiple on the S&P, that there really is no fear out there yet. So, you know, now it's time to see the, the most speculative, least cash generative, riskiest assets start to teeter. And that's that's what we've seen. Like I said, Silicon Valley Bank's portfolio is... About as speculative as you can get if you're going to invest in companies. So now those dominoes will kind of work their way through the system. And short term, like like I said before, it'll be a struggle as to whether or not the Fed can shore up confidence quickly as these other companies, all of which, you know, companies like Roku and all these other companies that have cash from Silicon Valley Bank, they're going to need to replace that cash somehow. So they'll either look to take on debt or they'll look to sell stock. You know, it, 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 you take that times their whole portfolio. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the ground that we're standing on is getting shakier by the second. There will be a day when equities come back down. I, I don't, what I don't really understand is like the idea that people who are cheering for a bailout here and are welcoming an intervention by the Fed with the S&P multiple at 18. Like, I don't even know, like, what, what, what's your bull case? You want to ride stocks from an 18 multiple to a 30 multiple? Because, that, you know, 
it wouldn't be from 18 to 25 because earnings growth is going to slow. So that that's got to be your that's got to be your bull case. You want to wind up, you know, with the S and P trading at a 30 multiple, and and it's just not happening. Like it, it's not happening with rates at four percent with this new psychology. Like there, there's only one way to go here, and <laughs> and it's not up, and it doesn't matter what the Fed does. And so until you start to see some fear and then some capitulation and then some despair, you know, the climate for buying equities, in my opinion, but for some select equities that I've written about on my Substack, just some extenuating circumstances, I think the climate for buying equities, I think, is still uh, not very good. The things that I would buy that I continue to buy and own, of course, gold miners, silver miners, precious metal miners. I even actually dipped my toe into one or two of the regional banking ETFs this week in a very, 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 very small size that I'll just kind of look to add. I took a couple of very speculative, risky stabs at a couple of these regional banks without really doing the necessary work on them. So don't follow me. But when JP Morgan was down, I nibbled a little bit of that. It still trades at 1.4 times book, which is expensive for banks. I don't think, I'm not necessarily certain this is going to be a systemic banking collapse at any point, but I do think a lot of crap and a lot of regional banks could get wiped out. But really, what I said I'd like to own at the beginning of the year this year, which was if you go on my Substack, I have a post called 23 Stocks for 2023. You know, gold and silver miners were, were two of them, kind of forecasting what has happened here. I don't have a lot of changes to my strategy because everything is kind of playing out the way that I thought it would. I also like, you know, another uh, another one from my blog. I own the ITA, which is the Aerospace and Defense ETF, and I'm buying Lockheed and NOC and GD and RTX and LMT Lockheed, like I said, all these defense stocks I like because I think shit's going to get real in terms of a, a cold war and then perhaps a hot war. So I think even though those companies trade at a 20, 25 multiple, they're a little bit of an exception right now because of the way the world is moving. And so, you know, all of the things that I wrote about at the beginning of the year, some other exceptions in the world of equities that I think makes sense despite the crazy valuations. I've I've kind of tucked into that post. But having said that, the overall climate, I expect the indexes to decline. I expect tech to decline. There's still a lot of froth and speculation and risk that has to come out of the system. It doesn't matter what the Fed does when they do it. There's only one way to go here. If you own gold, you know, I, I just look at it like, you know, I pick these select equities that I like and I own the miners at the same time. So even if the Fed decides to come in and bail out the entire stock market, we're going to put $200 trillion on our balance sheet tomorrow. You know, <laughs> and we're going to buy every bond on issue. It doesn't even matter what it is, which, you know, we laugh about, but is unfortunately, sadly, probably somewhere in the Fed's plan. Even if that happens, you know, the, the miners will just go crazy and you'll make your money there, even if you short the market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to to think about the difference between gold and crypto here. As you're mentioning, there's the circle stablecoin is supposed to be pegged one to one with the US dollar and it had dropped down to like 87 cents on the dollar, which is massive yeah. massive volatility. Even Tether at one point had dropped 3% below the $1 peg and you know, while that realistically doesn't sound like a huge deal, 
that kind of volatility in something that is supposed to be pegged one to one. Yeah. When there's $60 billion of it on issue, right? Yeah. It just reeks of malinvestment. And well, it's more than that. It's it's fraud. It's fraud. There's okay. fraud in the stable coins, you mm-hmm. know, so it, it's more than that. You know, all of these stable coins might as well be valued at zero unless they're backed one to one and the reserves are there and nobody can prove that. So at the end of the day, they're all going to go to zero with the exception of maybe one. And I don't know which one because there will be a, a best that rises out of all of them and f- facilitates the need for stable coins, of which there really isn't that much of a need anyway. I think if you want to if you want to do crypto, you know, in the, in the way that I'm positioned in crypto and I'm a skeptic. But if you want to do crypto, you just own Bitcoin. That's it. That's 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 the granddaddy, the bottom layer, the underlying of all this other crap. And so, you know, if the crypto market crashes, I'm not going to be in there buying, you know, Sol and Tether and this and that and the other. I'll buy Bitcoin and that'll be that because Bitcoin is the originator of the crypto ecosystem. It is the furthest along in terms of, you know, the network effect and the adoption that all the shit that, you know, all the Bitcoin guys say. But at the end of the day, you know, that's it. There's no need to own Circle. There's no need to own Tether. The fact that one of them has lied means that all of them have probably lied or have exposure to the other's lies. It will be a massive blow up in the stable coins and in crypto. It will be an enormous blow up. And so, you know, I would just stay far, far, far away. That, that could be the next thing that goes. You know, because there's only so many. I think these stable coins have been able to evade a lot of scrutiny because they can put on issue as many of them as they want. And uh, at some point, that jig will end, and there will be real questions that require real answers in the world of stable coins and in the world of crypto. And then we're going to see who's swimming naked. You know, we're going to really get a view on who has what they say they have and who is backing their stable coins the way that they claim that they are versus, you know, who's been fucking around. And my guess is almost all of them have been fucking around. And if they haven't been fucking around, they have exposure to another company that's been fucking around. So it is a big, giant, incestuous cesspool of just fraud and lies for these products don't even necessarily have a need to exist to begin with. So that could get really ugly, but yes, back to your original point, you know, circle is trading off its peg. You know, what does it mean? Will it come back? Yeah. Look at some point it's going to zero, you know, at some point circles going to zero. I don't know anything about it, but I can just tell you at some point it's going to zero at some point, all these stable coins, I think maybe but one, will go to zero. The only question is when and how it happens and, you know, how far down the line. If the Fed starts easing again and equities go bananas and all of a sudden there's a, you know, ton of excess liquidity again, you're going to get a second super cycle of fraud in crypto. So the first one wouldn't even have gone bust yet. You know, we saw FTX, but it's way worse than that, right? There's a ton of shit out there. We just don't know. So, you know, that would be par for the course for the Fed, not allowing malinvestment to, you know, kind of come in and do what it's supposed to. But it's a possibility. You know, we saw Bitcoin up 10% because the Fed came in and, you know, are posturing as though they're going to start to ease again. So the, the word is out. But, you know, look, I don't even know what your question was going to be. But for, for something like Circle, you know, for something like USDC, one of these stable coins, I don't think about it ever. 
And I'm 100% certain that at some point it's going to zero or very close to zero. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that, you know, is seemingly constantly looming in the background here at this time is the the geopolitical situation between China, Russia, this seemingly, you know, Cold War, proxy war, whatever you want to call it. And I want to get your thoughts on how we've seen that develop. And, you know, if this is just this incremental step-by-step slide away from, you know, the the dollar hegemony that that the US has enjoyed. Obviously, you know, you're not you're not cheering for or championing for the the end of the US dollar because of the pain that that is going to cause, but at the same time it just there seems like so many excesses as we as we just talked about need to be cleansed from the system here and, and right it just seems like the dollar has enjoyed this this privilege in the world for for such a long time that it makes me wonder when when and how that does come to an end oh well it's going to come to an end that is a certainty and the other certainty is we will be baffled by it. We won't we won't understand why and how it happens and it'll be regarded as one of the biggest tragedies in the history of the country. I'm certain of it. Because if it happened tomorrow, you know, the president would just have no clue. He wouldn't know what it meant, he wouldn't know why it happened. You know, he he would wouldn't be more surprised if he woke up with his head sewn to the carpet, you know, like and it will happen. The question is just on whose watch and how is it going to happen? Those waypoints are already being laid out right i mean a lot of it had to do with seizing russia's reserves when they went into ukraine i think that just kind of set the tone like all right you know we're going to kick them off the swift system and just abscond with their uh, with their reserves okay like we just don't want to be you know what they say they said we don't want to be a part of your monetary system anymore so we have the oil we have the you know china has productive capacity we have trading partners with china we have trading partners with India, we have, you know, security partners all over the world. And really, there is, as we've discussed numerous times, a giant bifurcation happening here in the global economy. And on one end, you've got the West and the, and, and the central banks and Europe and the United States. And on the other hand, you have the BRICS nations, you have Brazil, you have Russia, you have India, you have China, all kind of pairing together. And so there's no doubt that ball is already in motion. What I would tell your listeners is, don't listen to me. I would listen to Andy Schechtman just did an interview with Kitco like two weeks ago. I put it on my Substack if you're looking for it. It's free to read. There's no paywall or anything. Or you can just go to Kitco's YouTube channel and it's on their YouTube channel. And he lays out in great detail, like over the course of like an hour or a half hour, whatever it is, exactly how this whole thing got put into motion dating back, you know, 30 or 40 years and the direction that we're heading. And it's just, you know, he's been saying it for a while. If you've listened to your podcast or mine, you know, Andy, you know what he's been saying, but this is an updated take. It's worth listening to. I would direct everybody there. It's, it's a half hour or 45 minutes. That is just, if you're following this space and you're interested in, in the, you know, the sea change that's occurring, in the global economy, this is the interview that you want to watch. So I will, uh, I'll defer to him because he knows his shit way better than I do. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Chris. Well, is there anything else that you want to touch on before maybe we wrap up here? That's it, Tom. I really appreciate you having me as always. I listen to your podcast every day. Every time it comes out, I listen to it while I'm running and just keep the great content coming. It's a privilege to speak to you and your listeners as always. 
Thanks for that, Chris. And I listen to every one of yours as well and read your Substack as much as I can. And I, I appreciate the take that you give me from a different point of view of the market of not necessarily just solely focused on gold because it helps me understand different sides to the mainstream market as well. Awesome. Thank, thanks so much, Tom. Of course, your Substack, both the raven.substack.com and at QTR Research on Twitter, right? That's it. Yep. You can just search for the name of the blog is Fringe Finance. So if you just do a Google for QTR's Fringe Finance, it'll come up. Excellent. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.